This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Sunil Gulati, the most influential American in world soccer, gives a rare lengthy one-on-one interview about a range of topics, including his thoughts on the potential of promotion and relegation in American soccer. There's a number of issues that come up with that particular format of competition, but the biggest one is it's not the rules of the game that people bought into when they made investments, whether it's in the USL, the NASL, or in MLS. It's not the rules that we set out when teams came in. And so whether that happens or not, is it possible? Sure. Is it going to happen in the next few years? I don't think it is. But it's not going to be that we dictate it should happen or shouldn't happen. All that and my thoughts on soccer coming up. Take one. Here we go with my three thoughts on soccer. First up. It isn't enough that Antonio Conte has taken Chelsea nine points clear atop the Premier League in his first season with the club. It isn't enough that he has turned David Luiz into a reliable defender or Victor Moses into an effective starter. No, Conte has done something else too. His infectious joy for the game, for competing, for winning, is a sight to behold. Eden Hazard's remarkable one-man slalom run goal against Arsenal on Saturday was a thing of exquisite beauty, and I loved just as much Conti's reaction to it, running down the sideline like a man on fire and doing his own Lambeau leap into the crowd. Some might call it excessive. I call it pure competitive joy. Take two. Next up, there's another passionate manager in England who's doing big things under the radar, and he happens to be American. David Wagner is a German-American who played a few games for the U.S. national team in the late 90s, and he now has scrappy Huddersfield Town in fourth place in England's second tier. Wagner is just as fiery as his best friend, Jurgen Klopp, his former boss at Borussia Dortmund, and Wagner's own sideline run following a goal over the weekend ended up getting him into a scrap with Leeds United manager Gary Monk that was pure theater. A lot of people were wondering if we'd see another American Premier League manager for a long time after Bob Bradley's departure from Swansea, but now it could be next season. Something else to think about. Maybe Wagner should be a candidate for the U.S. men's job after World Cup 2018. His pressing style fits the U.S. player awfully well. Take three. Finally, I've got my own thoughts on my nearly hour-long interview with U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati in this podcast. I've been working on getting a sit-down interview with Gulati for three months, and he doesn't disappoint providing his opinions on topics ranging from labor talks with the U.S. women's national team to President Trump's travel ban to whether U.S. soccer would consider boycotting the World Cups in Russia and Qatar. You may not agree with everything Galati says, but I think a long-form podcast interview is a terrific format to get a sense for his thought process and his speaking ability, which has helped him become so influential in U.S. soccer and inside FIFA. One more thing. Galati says he has not yet decided whether to run for a fourth term as president of U.S. soccer in 2018. 
But if he does, I'm hoping he will finally have an opponent in that election for the first time and not run unopposed. Having multiple candidates would be good for him and it would also be good for everyone involved in U.S. soccer. Now, my interview with Sunil Gulati. Our guest today is the most influential American in world soccer. Sunil Gulati is the president of U.S. soccer and a member of the FIFA Council. He wears a lot of other hats, too. He's an economic senior lecturer at Columbia University, where we are for this podcast. And Sunil, just first off, wanted to say thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Uh, lots to talk about uh, these days. But first off, uh, we're here in your office, which has a lot of soccer stuff on the walls. And, and a lot of it's really cool. What are your favorite things here in this fairly tiny office at Columbia? Uh, well, it's... It is a fairly tiny office. Uh, everything at Columbia is congested like it is in New York City. What are my favorite things in here? Well, there's certainly lots of books that are favorite books, um, not only econ books, and there's some great pictures from you know, 25 years ago. Um, I guess if there's a single item, it's probably the picture of Barcelona walking onto the field with the Red Bulls. Um, my son happens to be holding hands with... Uh, with Ronaldinho, his best friend at the time was holding his other hand, and the picture got printed in Sports Illustrated, so that was pretty cool. Nice. I think I recall that one uh, from back in the day. Um, another thing before we get into soccer stuff is you do wear a lot of hats. You're the U.S. soccer president. You're on the FIFA council. Um, do you have a position currently with CONCACAF? Yeah, as a member, well, right now, yes, as vice president of CONCACAF. Okay. You're traveling a lot. How do you manage your time? How do you? How much time do you spend here at Columbia on stuff? Well, this is where I do everything uh, if I'm not on the road for soccer. Um, so I do my soccer stuff here. There's not another office I go to to do here. Um, during the semester, it's obviously more time on Columbia than it is during the summers. I don't have any teaching responsibilities during the summers. Uh, but I teach a couple of courses that I'm pretty familiar with. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of preparation that goes into one of those courses because I've taught it many times so, so there's updating and there's interaction with students and you know one of my favorite activities is where I take a lot of my students to lunch in small groups because it's a big class but in between classes and uh, and so on there's a lot of soccer that happens well I mean I'm trying to imagine here with Columbia all these jobs your family like is there a special thing you do to get all this stuff done you know um, I, I think the it's a lot easier, and I talk about this with some of my students, uh, it's a lot easier if the things you're doing you very much enjoy doing. You're passionate about, I'm passionate about teaching. Um, I love teaching undergrads, and I'm obviously passionate about soccer, so that makes it easier. It's, there are conflicts that come up. Um, so every semester we look at, you know, I look at the international calendar, uh, and then let the department know which two days of the week I'd like to schedule my two classes for, Monday, Wednesday, or Tuesday, Thursday. Generally, we can avoid uh, most of the conflicts, and every now and then there are things you can't avoid. So you know, I can't change international fixture dates or FIFA meetings, um, so I'll miss a class or two, but we reschedule those. Uh, unfortunately, for my big class, it generally means teaching that class two or three times in order to accommodate all the students, but for the most part, it works. And what are your economics courses here about? I have attended one of them. I, I went to the final lecture one semester when I did a, a feature on you. Yeah, no, I remember you doing that. Um, I'm not sure you picked up enough of the, the lessons of that class, but that's a different story. I know your <laughs> wife did. Maybe you rubbed off on her. Um, so there's, there's an, 
intro class Econ 101 stuff, a mm. couple hundred students. Um, and then there is the other class I'm teaching this semester is a sports economics class. Mm. It's actually the microeconomic uh, fun, fun, fundamentals of, of sports economics. Um, that's 16 senior majors. And probably about 40% of that class is my lectures. 20 to 25% is some guests that we had. Uh, have had and, and continue to have, and then the last, you know, 25, 30, 35%, whatever, is student presentations. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, that's a pretty popular course. It's restricted to 16, but we've had some great guest speakers, which pretty interesting for students, I think. Who are some of the guest speakers? You know, everybody from in basketball world, to from David Stern and Adam Silver have both mm -hmm. come. Um, from the football world, Jonathan Kraft has come, and we've gone to the NFL and met with various people there. Uh, from the hockey world, we've gone out to Prudential Center and the Garden and met with the CEO of those two places. Landon has come. Jurgen has come. Julie Foudy has come. Uh, Tom Clark, who at the time was president of Nike, has come. Rob Tillis, who runs Inner Circle Sports, has come. Bob Batterman, who has represented multiple leagues and uh, labor negotiations, has come. So a lot of a lot of different people. My guess here, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say this is probably a fairly popular in-demand class at Columbia. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, a lot of our seminars are oversubscribed, but uh, since it's seniors, it's a very popular class. Um, we now do all of our seminars by lottery um, mm -hmm. for, for most of the slots, and then I get to pick a few from, uh, from those others that kind of apply and write an essay about why they'd like to take the course. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Um, Different things I want to talk about here. I'm going to start off with a vote that the FIFA Council recently took, uh, which was a unanimous vote to expand the Men's World Cup to 48 teams for World Cup 26. I wrote a column. A few other people wrote columns. Uh, mine said that while I'm trying to keep an open mind, expanding to 48 could be the moment FIFA ruins the World Cup. What am I missing? Why was this, a vote, this vote in favor of expansion unanimous? Why did you vote for it? Well, it could, you know, your, your, your starting point is it could be the moment that FIFA runs the World Cup. It could also be the moment that the World Cup turns into something even more special. We don't know that. Um, there are people who wrote similar things when it went from 16 to 24 and 24 to 32. No one's arguing with 32 these days as being, you know, not too big. No one's saying that. So um, in terms of the decision... You know, I heard um, when it originally was proposed an expansion, I thought it was kind of a populist thing. And then I heard Gianni Infantino talk about it pretty passionately at a meeting uh, about the reasons. And they focused on, aside from the things you all heard publicly, which is expansion, the, the game, we've got far more teams that are competitive, the Costa Ricas and the Icelands and the, um, you know, those sorts of teams which haven't necessarily been considered powers have done very well at the World Cup and so on and so forth. But I also heard him talk about what happens in a country when they qualify for the first or second time. That's six, seven, eight, nine months after you qualify before the World Cup. And the country kind of gets soccer fever. Uh, and that's pretty special. And so to the extent that that happens in a few more countries and countries can get turned on and, and make investments in the game, that was really his pitch. So I think, you know, there's some, there's some truth in that. Um, would, would one say 36 teams is too many teams? So I think there's two very different issues. One is the overall quality of the tournament, and is that diluted by having more teams? If it's absolute quality you want, then, you know, having two or four teams is the right number because you're playing the very best teams in the world. No one's actually arguing for that. Um, so is that number from a quality perspective, 24 or 32 or 40 or 48, 
impossible to know for sure, but as you increase, you obviously dilute the absolute level of quality. And the second is the format issue. The 32, while you know one could argue that's the right number or the wrong number from an overall quality point of view, it's clearly a very good format from uh, from a, a you know a soccer competitive point of view. It works well, the number of games, all of that. So that's those are two of the challenges. It was pretty clear that a number of uh, of my colleagues were very supportive of of this. The president certainly was, and there had been a, a groundswell behind an increase. And then when you started looking at 40 or 48, I think you know in a way it got backed into 48 because the format that they came up with 48 was in my view, the best of the ones uh, that were offered of increasing the size. The ones at 40 had some big challenges. Um, the one 48 has some challenges, but if you're going to increase it and you're not going to 64, which would have obviously been a, a different possibility, then I think where we ended up was, was pretty good. So you're relatively okay with having groups of three and not playing simultaneous group games. Listen, those, so the, that's the format issue, right? Yeah. That's exactly the format issue and the likelihood of having lots of groups that are drawn on points. That's that's the big format issue. The plus is that you're going to get some new teams that are going to qualify, um, some other countries that are going to be turned on the sport, and I think that's a good thing. The format issue is obviously something we're going to have to work through and lots of lots of unknowns about that between now and the next few years when those things get worked out. It's a long time off. I'm looking forward to the 96 MLS shootout clocks being wheeled out from cobwebs. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not games. sure that'll happen, but <laughs> some of the things that we, we wanted to do early on seem to be back in favor. <laughs> um, what possible solutions are there for organizing, say, CONCACAF World Cup qualifying if you have a 48-team World Cup? I mean, is there any way to organize qualifying so that it would actually be interesting games and, and useful games for, say, the U.S. national team? Well, the answer is yes, uh, but again, now you get, there's two different issues. One is, obviously, lots of people are still talking about the possibility of the World Cup in 26 being in North America or being mm -hmm. in CONCACAF. If that's the case, and whether it's a, a joint bid or an individual host, you've got an automatic qualifier issue. Um, so, And that's happened to us before. Uh, our preparation for the 94 World Cup didn't fall apart because we didn't have qualifying games, nor did it for Mexico in 86. Um, so, you know, I think that's one piece of the puzzle. But if there are multiple quali multiple additional qualifiers, which there will be in almost any consideration for CONCACAF, does it change the dynamics? Sure. Uh, but does it make it more interesting, less interesting, if some of those countries are also hosts and not playing in qualifying? We'll wait and see. Um, overall, I mean... <laughs> Right now, I'd, I'd very much like the fact that six teams <laughs> qualified for the World Cup. Um, do, do you ever see a realistic possibility of the U.S. competing with South American teams in World Cup qualifying? In the future, everything's possible. Do I see that as, as something that's around the corner? The answer is no. Um, the stories that were out there a month ago about a joint competition and so on and so forth were completely nonsensical. Um, and I don't mean nonsensical, my view of them being nonsensical, meaning no one had actually suggested that. <laughs> and they started, you know, with a rumor that turned into a story. Uh, but no one at CONCACAF, as far as I know, and I talked to the, the, the leadership, had ever contemplated that. Um, so I don't, I don't know about where, those, where that story started, but it was never taken seriously. There had been some talk that the Caribbean countries might be interested in removing themselves from CONCACAF and going it alone. How serious is that possibility? Uh, I've heard that it was tabled at the executive committee meeting of, uh, of the CFU, but I don't think it's very serious. From the people I've talked to, they're very much committed to staying in CONCACAF. 
the, the vast majority of people are very much uh, interested in doing that. Okay. You did have a big influence in getting Johnny Infantino the votes he needed to win the FIFA presidency in the second round last year. We're just about a year into the Infantino era at FIFA. What's your assessment of what he has achieved and what you'd like to see him get done? Well, I think so he started off in a very tough circumstance, which was having to deal with the history. Um, and whether it was the investigations or the DOJ or all of those other things that had happened, that makes it hard to get going and starting new programs. He ran on a number of issues. One is trying to clean the place up uh, from some of the scandals of the past. Uh, and then two very important initiatives for him. One was increasing the size of the World Cup. Uh, and expanding opportunities for uh, for countries to participate, and second was funding for members. Uh, both of those have Im been implemented. So on the two big platforms which he ran, which he based his campaign on, uh, which he won the election on, he's implemented those relatively quickly. So I think that's, you know, you'd have to say, if you, whether you agree or disagree with those, that's what he got elected on, and he's fulfilled those promises. So I think that's a positive. Obviously, there's been some hiccups along the way, but I think those are decreasing over time. It's going to take a long time before the image of FIFA is restored to what people may have thought of it some years ago. That doesn't happen overnight, no matter you know, what you say and what you do in the short term. You've got to continue to do the right things for a long period of time, and then I think the image will, will get better. Uh, and on, on those perspectives, I think he's, you know, he's doing everything he can, along with other people he's brought in. There's been a lot of changes at FIFA itself in terms of management and day-to-day -day management. You know, if I look at the, the, the org chart, probably out of the top 15 people, 12 or 13 are new within the last year. And probably half of that is in the last 90 days. So when you do that, you're going to get lots of hiccups along the way when you've got that many new people. Uh, but, you know, you see some people that have an extraordinary background in the game and bring diversity to the game. So I think those things are all very positive. The U.S. has a pretty huge role, it seems like, in FIFA these days, especially after the Department of Justice made its arrests and got so many guilty pleas in its investigation. FIFA has hired U.S. lawyers, a U.S. PR firm, U.S. companies are FIFA sponsors, U.S. TV channels give FIFA lots of money, U.S. soccer helped get the FIFA president elected. Is that a good thing on the face of it for the U.S. from your perspective? Or are you also concerned other FIFA nations might think the U.S. has too much influence in FIFA right now? Well, I think you need to, to separate uh, two or three things. Half of those things you just listed, the U.S. has been involved in for a long time. Sponsors, television, so on. And then there are those things which U.S. soccer is involved in. And then there are those things outside of our jurisdiction or our, even our role. So whether Coke is a sponsor or not has very little to do with U.S. soccer. The actions of the DOJ have nothing to do with U.S. soccer. Um, some of the other things you talked about obviously do. So to the extent that we've got a seat on the council or that we supported a particular candidate, obviously those are, those are positive things. Or that we might host an event in the future or have hosted them in the past. Or our teams win gold medals. So those are positive. We certainly have a bigger role. Um, you know, the, the, the hiring of the, the law firm, well, that obviously wouldn't have been necessary if there hadn't been the DOJ uh, action, and the same in terms of a, a crisis management public relations firm. So some of those things reflect or are based on previous things that happened that, you know, we weren't in the middle of, we didn't have knowledge of, um, and I don't know if we can be, you know, held accountable for the actions of, of third parties, whether a sponsor chooses to move forward or not. Um, clearly, the, the DOJ's actions have done a lot of very positive things for helping to clean up FIFA. Uh, and 
you know, the fallout from that is still being felt, and we'll see what happens over the next year or two. What individual and third parties do is, is not something we can control. Would you ever be interested in running for the FIFA presidency? No. Never? No. Okay. Um, just today, we're talking on February 2nd, the NWSL announced a new TV deal with Lifetime for three years. Uh, U.S. soccer has played a central role in supporting the NWSL and uh, central role in this deal. What does this mean for the league, for women's soccer in the U.S.? Well, it's a huge positive because it gives the league exposure in a way that it's never had. Um, we've had half a dozen games broadcast in the previous three years of the league, or three maybe the first year and then half a dozen in the, the second two years, uh, the second uh, the second half of that four-year period. Uh, this is 20-plus games every year. And not only broadcast games, but uh, a strategic alliance with A&E where they're going to bring a lot of resources to bear, expertise, strategic expertise, financial resources, uh, their their platforms, whether it's online or, or linear. So I think there's going to be a lot of positives of that. And, you know, in the last three hours, I've had a couple emails of commercial entities which are interested now in talking to the league. Uh, and that's really a reflection of what happened this morning. And you're treated much more seriously, I think, when that happens. And, and A&E is a significant partner. Lifetime is a significant uh, outlet for the broadcast uh, of team games. And you'll see a lot of very positive things come out of that. What is the status of labor talks with the U.S. women's soccer team players right now? We, we've had a couple of meetings. They have new leadership in terms of their legal representation. Uh, we've had one meeting with, uh, with that leadership, kind of an introductory meeting. There are more scheduled for the next few days and subsequent periods. So uh, the, the whole discussion, I think, is on a very different, uh, has a different dynamic, has a different tone. Uh, that's certainly a positive, uh, and I think that greatly reflects uh, the, the, a, the leadership of the team um, and their views in a making a decision about that they were going to change leadership uh, in terms of their representation and then who that representation is because they're the ones who selected it. And I think so in the end, the players are the ones who set that tone uh, on, that si on their side of things, and that's very positive. I've met with, uh, with several of the players, of the team leaders, um, those that are part of this process, as well as the whole team uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's just a very different tone. You had what could only be called a victory in late December. You mentioned the U.S. women's players announced that uh, they had let go Rich Nichols, their executive director, who had been very combative with U.S. soccer before that. Now, several years ago during labor talks with the U.S. men's players, I remember reporting that you had a one-on-one -on -one discussion with Landon Donovan at one point that helped a solution to be found. Uh, did you have a meeting like that this time around with Alex Morgan or, or any other players on that team? You know, I think when we talked about, um, when you wrote that, it was a long time after um, <laughs> the CBA was concluded. So why don't, we, uh, why don't we wait and see how all this plays out? I'll take it we're not getting much more of a comment than that. Um, you're optimistic that a solution will be found soon with the U.S. women's players. Will equal pay be a phrase that could be used to describe that solution? I don't... I always use the term equitable pay, what is fair. Um, and I have no doubt we'll come to an equitable agreement with the players. There are so many differences in the agreements uh, now and some of the benefits that the, the women players get, some of the benefits the men players get. There are differences in revenues. All of that will be part of the discussion. The men don't, as you know, don't have guaranteed contracts year-round. Um, the women do, and it's for a very important set of reasons, and so on and so forth. So 
it, when you've got, while they are doing the same thing, they are performing a, a function for the national team, I think the right phrase here is equitable pay. And in the end, the players are going to have to agree to that, and we're going to have to agree to that, of what is, what is a fair and appropriate deal. And I have no doubt we'll get to that. Moving to the U.S. men's team, they lost their first two final round World Cup qualifiers in this phase. You fired Jurgen Klinsmann. You brought in Bruce Arena. How worried should U.S. fans be about missing World Cup 2018? Well, I don't know if you should be worried about it, but, you know, listen, we're, we're, I'm, I'm always worried about it until we qualify. And that's true when we've gone 3-0 and at the beginning or when we've lost a couple games like, uh, like we have right now. So are there plenty of points on the table for us to qualify? The answer is obviously yes. Um, how many points it'll take? Well, I don't want to cut it quite as close as Mexico did the last time which, if I remember correctly, was 11 and then a playoff game. 12 points out of, or was it, they, they only well, won two out of 10 games in right. the Hags. And so still 11 qualified. or 12 points out of yeah. 30, uh, <laughs> and they got to, got to the playoff game. A, I hope we're not going to a playoff game, um, and I'm fully confident that we'll get the job done. Uh, you know, so much of this, and you and I have talked about this before, is the sequence of games, right? Uh, whether it was this last round or the same round four years ago. Um, and after, you know, we lost to Guatemala and so on, I think I may have said to you, we're going to win the last three games and we'll qualify top of the group. Um, and that's, that's what happened. Uh, so the sequence of games is, is very important. And we had a very difficult game. We've never won in Costa Rica. What was different about this last time was the, the score and the, you know, the, the game was lopsided. Uh, the Mexico result was, you know, was disappointing. But those are two of the top teams. Those are the two teams that went to the second round of the World Cup last time round. So we've started with what, on paper, one would argue is uh, our two toughest opponents. Now, we're also considered in that same, same general group, uh, so one would have hoped for points. But I am I'm quite confident, but never, never falsely optimistic about, you know, this is a tough group and the teams are better. Panama's never had a team like they've had in the last few years. Right. They're a better team than they are. Costa Rica, we know about what they did at the World Cup. Mexico, everyone knows about. Um, Honduras has made it to the last World Cup. So, you know, th this is not easy. Um, and qualifying, especially on the road, is very hard. But I think Bruce has been through this before, and we have enough players who have been through this before and have quality generally that, that will, be, will be in Russia. I asked you this question for a magazine story that's out this next week on Bruce Arena. Why Bruce Arena? Why now? Well, you know, I think my comments there were uh, for, for three different reasons. Um, one is he's got the experience and the knowledge. He's been through this before. Two, he knows our player pool intimately and knows, you know, can hit the ground running. And, there's, and that leads to the third point, which is there's not a lot of time between now and March. So those first two characteristics were very important. Bruce's track record is unmatched uh, in American soccer. On a win-loss percentage, our last three coaches, so basically since 1998, are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. uh, Bruce's overall win-loss percentage, Bob's and Jurgen's. Uh, Bruce obviously had the team a little bit longer than, than either of the other two, so he's got more wins uh, and, and probably more losses, right, because of the percentages being the same. But he's extraordinarily accomplished at every level of the game. College soccer, hugely successful. Professional soccer, hugely successful. National team, uh, hugely successful. And I think, you know, from a motivation point of view, Bruce has got some unfinished business. Um, and it's unfortunate, but when you're the national team coach, you know, if you lose your last game, which means if you're not the World Cup champion, you end on a bad note in some sense, right? Now, 
if, if the U.S. had lost in the World Cup final in 2006, yes, it would have been a bad note in one way, but it would have been just fine. Not getting through the first round, I think Bruce feels um, he, that he's got some unfinished business. I think that's a plus as well. How much are you already engaging with at least the idea of, if you're still in charge in 2018, who you might want to hire as the U.S. men's coach in 2018 after the World Cup? Um, I think when I think about our national team, 99% of that is focused on March of this year. So everything depends on qualifying uh, in terms of long-term decisions on the national team. So while you think about some of those things, you don't, you don't, I mean, yes, we think about it. We plan for it. We talk about various people that are doing well or not, but there's not a serious discussion about that issue uh, at least for you know for some time down the road. Not even from a long-term planning perspective. No, from a long. As I said, we think about that, we talk about it, yeah. but it's not like we've got a you know a flip chart. And we're saying, okay, these would be six great names. Have we talked about some names? Sure, you always do that. Uh, but even there, you've got coaches who are very successful. So, you know, a guy um, or or a woman, whoever it might be, highly successful this year, and then they have a bad year wherever they are. Your views change immediately. Right, and we could talk about individual candidates on that even. So you win a championship, whether it's an MLS or you do very well abroad, that changes people's views. Now that doesn't happen over a few weeks, but we're talking about a year and a half. So you know, someone that does very very well that you might think is terrific in MLS as a candidate, if they don't make the playoffs this year, the view of the world changes on them. The view of them as a good coach changes, and so you know, there's there's plenty of time for that decision. If we're looking at a sort of new era potentially starting, though, in 2018, do you think it's more likely to see an American in that position or a non-American? I don't want to. I don't want to predict that. We'll find the best possible coach we can. Um, so I don't. I don't think I want to uh, take a shot at uh, at predicting what we might do. You put a lot of yourself into hiring Jurgen Klinsmann and investing in him and his plan. How was it for you personally just to have to, to make the move to end it with him? Listen, it's the hardest things one does in position um, when you've got to make personnel decisions, uh, whether it's about a coach or for a coach about a player. So those are very hard decisions. And in this case, um, you know, you're going to be with the team for a long time. Uh, in our case, not a lot longer than some other coaches, but by world standards. Uh, and so it was, it, those things are never easy. Uh, and some of the results as of late weren't what we'd hoped. So we made a decision. But personally, those things are always very hard. Um, and it's not, it's not just the personal investment in a particular coach or player, if it's a coach that we're talking about. But it's just the, the you know, you're dealing with people. And so those things are hard. No, no matter how successful they've been or what their other accomplishments may be, these are very hard decisions. Uh, but in the end, we, we felt that it was in the best interest of the program to make the change. You're 57 years old. I'm 43. Do you think the U.S. can win a men's World Cup in our lifetimes? So we've spent 100 years between us, by my math that you just threw out, and we haven't been able to do it there. But do I think we'll do it in the in – the, well, you're 43. Um, yeah, I think we can. Okay. It's funny because, uh, and I said this story publicly. So some years ago, Bruce Bruce had made comments that he didn't uh, he didn't think we would win a World Cup in his lifetime. He's changed a little bit on that. He said now hopes we do. And I was at the World Cup, um, and this was in two thousand and two, I think. Uh, and uh, I was at the final, 
Brazil wins over Germany, I guess, right? Yeah. And I called Bruce the next day, and he, he didn't answer, but I left him a message, and I said, listen, and I wasn't president at the time, I said, so I'm, you know, I've said publicly we're going to win the World Cup in my lifetime. You've said publicly we're not going to win the World Cup in your lifetime. Can we figure out some way to mediate this so I don't have to commit a felony on your person? <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, I think, listen, it's very hard, obviously. Only, you know, a handful of countries have won it. Um, and 209 out of 211 countries take it really seriously. So this is a challenge, and there's a lot of other countries that are getting better. They're investing huge resources, whether it's on player development or infrastructure. So it, this isn't a time trial where if we're getting better, automatically we're going to win because everyone else is trying to do the same thing. So do I think that's possible in, in I don't want to say in your lifetime and not mine because then I've narrowed it down to a very small <laughs> Small uh, window, but yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. I also plan to live to 150. I don't know about you. Yeah, well, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. That's why you married a doctor, I guess. So you got round-the-clock uh, attention if you need it. In your opinion, I know this is a big question, are we doing enough in the U.S. right now on player development and including minority communities in that development? No. In a word, no. Um, and I say that for two reasons. One is we can always do more in player development. Right, you can always do more about learning. So there's some things that you know we'd all have to have limitless time or limitless resources. That's not the reality of it. In the second part of that, um, and, and the first part, by the way, it's not only enough. Are we doing all the right things? We got a very big country, so we have different challenges, and there's not a playbook on this that necessarily is applicable to the U.S. So we're trying to figure out bits and pieces, and a lot of people have different opinions and so on. And some of our advantages, size. Geography are also some of our challenges, size, geography. On the second part of it, no, we're clearly not getting into minority communities as much as I would like, whether that's the Hispanic community, the African-American community, or other minority communities. And that's partly because of resources. It's partly because of the challenges that come with space issues in inner cities and our inability to identify players. That's getting better, I think, as professional soccer grows in the U.S. And now there's a huge incentive for clubs whether it's MLS clubs or NASL clubs or USL, to find those players that, that they're seeing in their marketplaces because there's an investment they can make in those players. When we're sending a scout in to watch a team or watch a club or we've heard about a player, that's a little bit different than having somebody locally that can see him play all the time. So we could be doing a lot more. I think we are doing and have done a lot more over the last few years, but we've still got a long way to go. What are some specific initiatives that you would point out that U.S. soccer is doing in these areas? Well... So I think, you know, we could name three or four right off the bat. Development Academy is certainly one. And a Development Academy where more and more teams now are fully funded. Uh, so that's probably about a quarter of them. And a whole bunch of other players are partially funded by U.S. soccer um, on a scholarship basis and by their, by their clubs. So, you know, the pay-to-play model, while it still exists for most of the players in the country, for elite players at, at the Development Academy level, that's changing somewhat, so that's certainly a plus. The training centers that we have, which are really for unidentified players, as well as us being able to track players over time. So we see a player at age 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever it might be, and then we can watch that player a few times, even though there's not a national team in his age group. And then having these training centers where we're you know, basically talking to local coaches and people that are involved at a day-to-day -day level and saying, send us some players that you think that aren't in our system. So we get a chance to look at those. And then you'd add the, the whole setup and system around uh, MLS, the NASL, the USL, MLS in particular because they're so heavily involved in youth development. That's a big plus where, you know, I think there's no doubt that MLS teams, because of the incentives involved, have found players that weren't necessarily in a national team player pool 
that may well end up being in a national team player pool. That's a positive. Okay. We're on the campus of Columbia University, just walking over here from the subway. You can't help but see signs up in windows that say, we're not helping you build that wall. Uh, this has taken over a lot of conversations all around the country uh, with the new administration. I'll ask you the same thing I asked Michael Bradley the other day. What is your opinion of the Trump administration's travel ban on these majority Muslim countries? I, I don't think that the executive order that's been is issued is consistent with a lot of American values. Um, and when I think about, you know, there's, there's two images when you think about New York that maybe come into play for people here. And they're both downtown and they're both around New York Harbor. One is the memorial from 9-11, which still is in a lot of people's minds and, and raises security concerns. That It's not a question of whether they're rational or less rational. It's Those are concerns for people. And so security is obviously something that's very important to us. Obviously, the, the, the other major image is that poem on the Statue of Liberty. Um, and I think while there's always a balance between those things, everything America stands for uh, in terms of openness, in terms of being welcoming, is challenged by such an executive order. It's going to be challenged and has been challenged successfully already in, in courts. Uh, and my guess is you're going to see modifications in that. So it doesn't represent the what is, I believe, the best of us. And my guess is some years from now, um, a lot of people will look back at this and, and say, we shouldn't have done that. Um, from a... I, I realize soccer's kind of peripheral in some ways to this this is these are questions about the country but soccer is connected in some ways too from a like a reciprocity standpoint about how other countries might respond how could this potentially affect soccer in the u.s and american soccer players i don't i don't think um i think it's too early to know that um uh, but hopefully that the, the executive order will be either modified or we've talked about a 90-day period and then we'll get back, if not sooner, to you know the, the values we have. I think the bigger issue is, is the, what it says about the country in the eyes of other people. Um, so there, there's the, the two things. One is the short-term effects of movement of people and so on and the protests that, are, that you're seeing, whether it's on college campuses or across the country. And two is how people then view the United States. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, some countries may turn around and say, okay, we're going to have the, an equal sort of policy now on your visitors to our country. That's one issue. That's the practical short-term implications. The longer one is how it changes the view of people of the United States as a world leader in these areas, as an open country, as an example, a shining light, if you will. Um, so that, that's certainly a concern. And hopefully the very short-term nature of this, what I'm certainly hoping is short-term nature, or possible modification or reversal or elimination um, will help us to, to dampen those long-term long views. I remember when the bid that you led for World Cup 22 with FIFA, it seemed like, if I recall correctly, one of the main selling points in your pitch was the ability for people to come from countries around the world to the United States. Could you make that case today? Yeah, I think the answer is yes, and it was a big part of our bid, 
and it was it was two part. One is the openness and and so on, but two was actually a, a little bit of a practical matter into the people that and the teams that be part of the World Cup. That there's lots of fans here from all of those countries, and that's true, uh, and that's still the case. So uh, I think we it would be hard to make that pitch today, but we're not making that pitch today, um, and I'm hoping that that a lot of things that are happening now and will hopefully happen over the next few weeks will give the administration um, the, the, the time to look at this from a security perspective as they've said they'd like to do but also understand that the implications of this long term and get back to where we were and that doesn't mean necessarily open borders without no one's saying that um, but something closer to what you know what that image in the harbor stands for. You haven't announced officially yet whether the U.S. is going to bid for World Cup 26. Um, sounds like there's a decent chance. A lot of people think the U.S. or combined hosting U.S., Mexico, Canada are favorites to host that World Cup. Does the, the new administration under Donald Trump have an influence on whether to bid and whether you might get those rights? Listen, I think it's very early days. Um, the process is, is not scheduled to start until later this year with the decision in 2020. That's a long way off um, if, if that process uh, is maintained on, on that timetable. So I've said before, clearly when people are voting for something like this, it's not only about the technical specifications of a bid. Um, it's, it's about what people think of the bid, what people think of your hospitality, what people think of the country, what people think about foreign policy all of those things. We don't control all of those things. So we will do everything we can if we if we decide to bid and if we decide to bid with others to put our best foot forward to show what the US is capable of doing. But you know, no one in sports, whether it's the LA organizing committee or US soccer or the Canadian Soccer Association or the Mexican Federation controls the policies of their governments uh, and controls therefore the full view of people views of their country. And that's not something we can control. I know as recently as December at the U.S. Soccer Board meeting, there was going to be some discussion on whether the U.S., if you were going to bid, should bid alone or potentially with Mexico and or Canada. Where, where are you on that? We're still discussing it. We'll have another board call next week uh, to discuss that in part. So we're still, you know, we're still uh, in a situation where we're analyzing everything that's going on in, in the world, in the soccer world, and outside the soccer world before we make a decision and still open to a lot of different possibilities. A colleague of mine, Leander Sherlackens, asked on Twitter this past week, and I thought I would pass it along here. It was after you had said in San Diego that U.S. soccer supported Michael Bradley's right to speak his mind on President Trump. Uh, and his question was, why is U.S. soccer okay with Michael Bradley expressing his opinion, but not with Megan Rapino taking a knee during the national anthem? Yeah, I sent Leander a note saying uh, something like, I can't believe that you don't see the difference between these two. Um, there are a lot of things that that, that that would be the equivalent of saying, well, you're okay with this free speech, but not with this free speech. And in one of the cases, for example, someone yelling profanities. I'm not saying what Megan did was yelling profanities. Those are two very different actions. Uh, Michael made statements about a policy of the United States in this case and of the president that he disagreed with. That's fine. When we talk about something like the anthem uh, or the flag 
and wearing a U.S. national team uniform. One of the few things that we generally come together as a people. So this wasn't about the underlying issue of the disagreeing with Megan and the issue she was protesting. Obviously, that wasn't it. But those are two very different things. And I, I, you know, I don't know other than saying, well, they're both free speech. And as um, as I think we both know, actions under an employer at a university and so on aren't covered under the First Amendment in the same way that um, that some people have written about. So. I don't. I don't see the. I don't see any inconsistency between those two, frankly. U.S. Soccer recently gave second division sanctioning to both the NASL, which has been struggling, and the USL. Are you satisfied with the way that process turned out? Yes. Um, you know, it was a long and difficult process. There were a number of possibilities along the way, and some changing dynamics, um, especially in the case of the NASL. But even, you know, within the last six months, you had a couple teams leave from the NHL to join, uh, join the USL and then some late, uh, some late movements with the, with the Cosmos. So I am satisfied with the, with the process. Uh, we had a committee that spent a lot of time looking at these, uh, these two leagues, and then the board finally made a decision. Uh, the landscape of uh, soccer in America has changed pretty dramatically over the last quarter century, but even over the last five years. And what we're trying to do is make sure that when certain things happen in one of the professional leagues, which are visible uh, and highly visible, that there's not a lot of negative external effects to some of those things. And if you lose a team or lose a league or team moves because it's not financial, those aren't good things. And we need to make sure when teams are coming in that they're going to be stable, that the owners are committed. And that's some of the things that we've done now in, in, um, in, in the case of both leagues is ask them for additional commitments on things like that. And those standards and those required commitments have changed over time. The same way that emission standards on cars are different today than they were 50 years ago, right? Because the world has grown, our views are different, the landscape is different. So would we have you know, a different set of standards a decade ago on whether it's number of teams or financial capacity of teams or stadium size? Of course we would, because if we said 25 years ago or 10 years ago, well, for any women's league, you have to have 16 teams to start with we would have never started a league. But over time, whether it's safety standards on an elevator or emission standards, or in this case, standards and requirements of our professional leagues, safety standards for players, all those things have, have changed over time. Recently, Peter Wilt, who has started several soccer teams in the U.S., wrote a story for Howler Magazine. There was a detailed proposal for how, in theory, promotion and relegation could work in the United States. Did you read it, and what did you think of it? I've read a lot of things on promotion and relegation. I've read lots of things by, by Peter um, along the way over the years. So, you know, as I've said many times, um, there's a, a number of issues that come up with that particular uh, format of competition. But the biggest one is it's not, the, it's not the rules of the game that people bought into when they made investments, whether it's in the USL, the NASL, or in, in MLS. It's not the rules that we set out when teams came in. And so whether that happens or not, is it possible? Sure. Is it going to happen in the next few years? I don't think it, it is. But it's not going to be that we dictate it should happen or shouldn't happen. You've got investments that have been made. And so if the leagues uh, get together and say, we should look at this, are we willing to help facilitate that discussion? Sure, we'd be willing to. But it's not, you know, if, if, if you make an investment today and the next day the government, in this case us, um, changes the rules completely and changes the value of your investment, that's going to lead to some serious problems. That's point one. 
point two, and I've seen a lot of the empirical evidence on this, and there is not a lot of empirical evidence on the benefits and, and, uh, and costs of a promotion relegation system. Yes, there was the Deloitte study, uh, and, and I've met with the author of that, and we talked about it. Um, but, you know, for example, one of the benefits that comes out there is that teams that are at the bottom, uh, in a particular first division, let's say, will do whatever they have to to make investments to stay up, so that increases the competition. Okay, that's, that's true, but in a salary cap world, is that true? The answer is no, it can't be. So what, what are the empirical uh, evidence on this? My main point in all of that is I'm not saying one system is better than the other. What I'm saying is this is the one we have, this is the one that people bought into, paid money to get into. The European system, am I a fan of, of seeing great promotion relegation battles? Sure. I'm also a fan of seeing great playoff games. Um, so, you know, we've got a very different system here on many fronts, not just on promotion and relegation. Transfers of players. In the rest of the world, contracts are not assignable. Here, we've got contracts that can be assigned, and therefore players can be traded in a different way. The length of the season, all of those things are, are very different. After Johnny Infantino won the FIFA presidential election last year, I remember interviewing you on Fox Sports afterward, and you said Infantino understands the unique nature of the U.S. system. Was that a reference to that he, you know, him being potentially okay with no promotion and relegation here? No, no, that was just a general that he knows the U.S. very well. So no, it wasn't about promotion and relegation. But you know, to, to be clear, while there is a, 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 a rule within FIFA about sporting merit, there's also an exception for countries that don't have that right now. It's in the FIFA, the, the minutes of the executive committee, because they weren't going to force that on people. Uh, and we're not the only ones without that. You've got multiple leagues around the world. Uh, so the, the rules about sporting merit were created not because someone sat back and said promotion and relegation is the way to go, frankly. It came up because in a couple of situations, teams that got promoted or relegated effectively changed jerseys, had new owners, and kept the team that was relegated back up in the first division. And FIFA didn't think that made a lot of sense. So um, I, I don't see a situation where... Uh, we're going to take on the sort of legal challenge that would come up if we force that on a system. Okay. And and none of the three leagues at this point is talking about that. No one's saying to us we really need promotion and relegation. Um, the, the, the Deloitte study was obviously funded by, by one of the owners of the NASL. And as I said, we met with, I met with the, the guy at Deloitte who wrote it and one of the guys from uh, Miami FC. We had an intelligent discussion about it. I gave them comments on it, pros and cons. Um, and so I think we'll continue to, to look at that and, and see where things develop. You became U.S. soccer president in 2006. Um, you said that you aren't sure yet if you'll run for a fourth term as president in 2018. If the new term limits rule goes through, you would be allowed to run for one more term in 2018. What factors will go into your mind on making that decision? You know, it's, it's a year plus away. Um, and I think the... You know, there, it comes down to a couple of three things. One is whether I'm still enjoying the job, um, and most days I do, not all days. And two is whether I think I can uh, continue to do, uh, you know, take the take the take the federation forward. In a nutshell. And then the pragmatic part of it, it obviously, is you know, if, if can you win the election? Are there other people running? Is there someone else? All those things matter. But it's not something I focused on very much at this point. As U.S. Soccer President, you are not paid. You are paid for your spot on the FIFA Council. Should future U.S. soccer presidents be paid? 
You know, it's a discussion that's come up a number of times, um, including proposals on the floor of uh, and amendments to our Constitution uh, to have the president paid. Um, the two or three times it's come up, I've asked uh, the people that put forward the amendment to withdraw it, and they mm -hmm. eventually did, uh, because I didn't think that we should uh, have the discussion in that framework uh, sort of on the floor or immediately. It's an interesting question. If we ever do that, and if it happens while I'm president, uh, I'm certainly not going to have it apply to me. And the, 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 the two sides of the argument, one are you exclude a whole bunch of people from being able to do the job uh, because they can't give up their day job. Um, and the other side of it, obviously, is that we have a full-time CEO and a full-time staff, and the, the president should be more of a chairman position. Um, the FIFA world is moving closer to the former, hmm. where the president of FIFA, the president, all the confederation presidents now are paid. There are many now federation presidents who are paid, and that's changed over time, and paid in different ways of whether it's salary or honorarium and so on and so forth. So I've got mixed feelings about that, um, and I think it's something we'll, we'll discuss in the future, um, but I don't think there's an easy answer that it should be one way or the other. You've won three elections as U.S. soccer president, but you've been the only candidate each time. Wouldn't having more than one candidate be a good thing in an election, even for you? Sure. I, I, and, but that's not, if what you're asking, do I agree with that? The answer is yes. Um, if you think that I should then go out and get people to run against me, then we probably disagree. Um, but, you know, you've been a almost candidate for the FIFA presidency, so uh, in this case, uh, it would be relatively easy to get nominated. Uh, and shoot. I've seen online various people say that you should run. <laughs> well, that's a different discussion for another day. Um, we're winding up here. I appreciate it. Um, the next two men's World Cups are in Russia and Qatar. Russia has been implicated in massive state-sponsored doping programs and sports and has been sanctioned by the U.S. for its role in Ukraine, at least until maybe recently. We'll see. Qatar has been charged with human rights violations. Would U.S. soccer ever consider boycotting the World Cups in Russia and Qatar? Ever consider? Yeah, listen, it's such a, a hypothetical statement. We know what the circumstances are now, and um, as it stands today, the only reason we wouldn't go to Russia is, is one that's going to be settled on the field. Uh, so I don't want to say ever consider a, a hypothetical question like that. Do we have issues with some of the things, or do we have concerns about some of the things you've raised? The answer is, of course, yes. Um, to the extent that the World Cups uh, are decided by FIFA are supposed to be free of political decisions, okay, that's true, but FIFA has also used an extraordinary amount of power, as did the IOC, in causing some positive change in South Africa. Uh, as I mentioned at a FIFA council meeting when it said we should stay out of politics. So to me, that was actually a shining moment of the international sports movement. So to the, to the extent that you can cause positive change um, in, in various countries uh, by using not necessarily the stick, whether it's a stick or a carrot, however, um, then I think that's a plus. And to the extent that we can do that by using any influence we have, I think that would be a good thing. But I don't think we should be talking about boycotts um, you know, at, at this stage in time. You talked a few minutes ago about enjoying this job most days. What are the things you enjoy most? Uh, well, I think more often than not, it it's, uh, involves one of our national teams uh, winning a game, um, whether it's you know the Women's World Cup or the 
you know, until a few months ago, uh, the, the, the famous Dosa Zero line. Um, so I think that's it. There's also, you know, just seeing the growth of the game. So yesterday when, or the day before yesterday, I guess, when you see a press release put out by MLS that lists 12 teams or 12 cities that are interested in an MLS team, and I think back to where we were 20 years ago, well, that gives you a lot of satisfaction. Um, so there are those moments that are, you know, temporal because you win a game. And then there's those moments where you kind of sit back and look and say, wow, um, you know, how far we've come. So that, that certainly gives me a great amount of pleasure and, and pride uh, on where the sport's come. Last question for you. How many miles did you fly in calendar year 2016? I think probably about 350,000. That's a lot. That's a lot. I hope you have status at this point. You get it automatically if you're at these numbers. <laughs> yeah. Like the answer, the real answer to that is too much. <laughs> well, Sunil Galati, thank you for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Sunil Gulati, as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Sean Francis, Moya Dodd, Kate Abdo, Colin Udo, and Rory Smith. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.